Uh, the sermon text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, just a reminder to catch you up with where we are in the biblical narrative, Moses has been living in the land of Midian for 40 years or so, and uh, the he grew up in Egypt and now is living there in exile when the Lord appears to him in a burning bush and calls him to be the agent through whom the Lord will deliver his people from bondage, from their captivity in Egypt. And so that call, the Lord's call to Moses begins uh, at the, begins in chapter 3, right at the beginning of chapter 3, and it goes actually on for quite a while, uh, runs all the way to the end, or to the middle portion of, uh, it depends how you define the middle, but anyway, chapter 4, it's a long, it's a long text. God has much to say to Moses on this point, and Moses has much to say in return. And so we're, we're not going to, that's why we don't deal with the whole thing all at once, but are focusing on a portion of that, uh, which is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. So Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations." Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Thanks be to God. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not so good with the pauses. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us by your spirit that we may know your name, and that we may know who we are because of your name. Amen. I think one of the great questions as you prepare for worship is why you should worship. And I don't know if you actually do prepare for worship. Um, I think for me it's just become a routine, and I don't really think very hard about why I go to church on Sundays. 
because that's what I do, that's what I've always done, and therefore that's what I'm always going to do. And of course, if I stop going to church on Sundays, that will mean that the world has come to an end. Right? That's, that's that happened. I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but, then, but then you hear a sermon or two, and then you start thinking, well, I should really think about it. Uh, and so then you start wondering, well, why? Why do I go to church? Why should I praise the Lord? What are the things about God that I should focus on? And then you get into the theology books and the what-have-yous, and you become Presbyterian, and you start reading about God's sovereignty, and then your head starts spinning, and like start thinking about all the various attributes of God that you should be focusing on. And that's all good, I guess. Um, but really, of course, what we should be doing is asking, how does God say he wants to be praised? For what does God say he wants to be praised? For what does God say he wants to be remembered? What is his memorial? A memorial, the thing by which he wants to be remembered, the thing for which he wants to be praised. I think we can lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that God has told us in his word, and maybe even then as we read the text this morning, have missed the point that God here tells us precisely why he wants to be praised, for what reason he wants to be remembered by his people and by really the entire world. What the Lord wants you to know is that you are the Lord's memorial and that you are to praise the Lord because he has redeemed you. And so we'll Look, in the first place, at the first few verses of our text, verses 13 through 15, and see how it is that the Sovereign's Lord is your memorial. And these verses, as you probably notice, center on the question of God's name. What is God's name? That is Moses' question, and it's a question of authority in verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses' question is getting at Moses' own authority. That is, the reason that he has the, 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 the bona fides, the credentials he will present to the Hebrews as the messenger of their God. It's worth remembering that the Hebrews, that the descendants of, of Israel, Jacob, have been in Egypt for roughly 400 years, and that they have been oppressed, they've been under the oppression of the Egyptians, the specific, the, the specific acts of oppression, put in slavery, put in bondage, uh, losing their, any, any power, political power that they may have once had, and in fact enslaved, for over 80 years. It's been going on for, for quite a while, and God has not yet delivered them, obviously. Now, this is the moment that God is choosing to act for their deliverance, but it's worth asking, okay, where has God been? That's what's, that's what's lying behind Moses' question. Uh, not that there is, not is there a God, but where has God been, and how do we know that you really are God's messenger, that you really are the Lord's uh, the Lord's appointed redeemer, if you will, because that is what he is. He's a person who's come to bring redemption to Israel. How do we know that you're the guy that God has appointed for this task? And so he wants to know God's name because that will be his credential. And so that's what's driving Moses to ask that question. It really is about who Moses is, but who Moses is depends entirely, of course, upon who God is. 
uh, that in fact he is serving the one true God who is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in answer to the question, what is God's name, the Lord teaches him, the Lord declares to him that he is the sovereign redeemer. And we see that he's a sovereign redeemer in the first place because of the name that God first gives to Moses. He says, I am who I am. And that sounds, in the first place, really deep. I am who I am. And then, when you think about it, it says absolutely nothing whatsoever, right? I am who I am. Because any of us could say that about ourselves. I could say that. You say, who are you? I say, well, I am who I am. To which you would say, that is not entirely helpful. Um, because I have recognized your existence by saying, hello, who are you? So, so we can move on past uh, the question of basic ontology and into identity, if you would please. Uh, I'm sure that's how you, what you would say. Um, that, and so that's quite, I am who I am. What does that mean? I am who I am. And of course, it gets to the root of the issue, the root of the problem of asking who God is. That if you want to know who I am, you say, who are you? And then I'll give you, you know, give you my name. Like, okay, what do you do for a living? What's your background? Where do you come from? Who are your parents? All of this stuff. You ask all those questions. And then, but, and so, so I will define myself, I will describe myself as you do in reference to other people, other relationships, other places in the world. Those define who I am. Those make up who I am. Nothing defines God. He is entirely God. He is entirely self-contained. Who made God? Nobody. How long has God existed? Not a relevant question. Category of time does not apply to him because he created time as he created all things. Uh, okay, um, where does God live? Where did he come from? He doesn't. Okay, um, what does God do? Yes. God defines himself. God is entirely within himself. There is nothing outside of himself that makes him God. He is. I am who I am. And this is the doctrine, this is, this is important for us to understand this because this is the doctrine of aseity. Aseity. And this is one of those, this is one of those uh, theological words that people always say, well, why do, we, why do we have to use these big, these fancy words that you never use in any other context to talk about God? Well, if we have to use these words you never use in any other context to talk about God because you can't use these words for anybody else. This is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That's your vocab word for the day, aseity. And that's the doctrine that this God is who he is in and of himself. And so when Moses, when God tells Moses, rather, I am who I am, there is this great declaration of his basic identity and therefore of his sovereignty. Sovereignty simply means God's right to rule, his authority, 
not his power, but his authority, that he has the right to rule. Because he is entirely self-contained. He doesn't need his people. He doesn't go to Israel because he's going to get something from them because he doesn't need them. He doesn't need anybody at all. And therefore, he can rule over them perfectly without self-interest, without, uh, without, without the need to control, without the need for power or anything else, because he already has it all. Because there is no one who can control him, he therefore has the ability to control everything else and to rule over everything else. His sovereignty, his right to rule, his authority to rule is grounded in his aseity. Not his aseity by itself, but certainly in his aseity. One of the things that I... It's a long story, but, but um, a line from Lorraine Bettner, who was a Reformed theologian, was I came into Presbyterian church, thought, oh, that's really cool. They got this woman who wrote their theology books they're all reading. It turns out Lorraine's a dude, um, which is really weird. Uh, but anyway, but there's a line from Lorraine Bettner, which is, God's sovereignty is a necessary concomitant of his aseity, which I learned because it makes absolutely no sense when you hear it the first time, but like I had to think about it a long, long time, so it just stuck in my head. But that's, it, it just goes with it. God's sovereignty, that's what concomitant means, just comes alongside. Because he is a saity, because he has a saity, because that defines who he is, therefore he is sovereign, therefore he rules. And so that's who God is. But notice, God doesn't stop with that name for himself. He is not simply, I am who I am. He is, I am who I am in relationship to my people. He goes on. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then say this to the people of Israel. And it just struck me this morning, say this to the people of Israel, say this to the people of Israel. So it all, all of the things the Lord says here is that these are my name. This is my name. This is how it all, it's all one package in terms of God's name, in terms of the name of the Lord. The Lord, the God of your fathers. And, and the, the Lord there is no doubt in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it stands in for... In our English translations, it stands in for the special divine name, the special name of God, which is revealed in the Old Testament here uh, by four letters, uh, which are it's called the Tetragrammaton, uh, which just means four letters. Uh, and the reason we can't call it, we can't actually pronounce it and have to use words like the Tetragrammaton to describe it is because the pronunciation has been lost. Because the Jewish people over the years with the Bible said, well, that's God's name, so it's super special and religious and spooky, and so we're just not going to pronounce it. We're just going to, you know, just say, we're going to say the name the Lord rather than saying the Lord's name. So it's sometimes rendered as Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, it all depends. Uh, but, but which has always struck me as not the point. God has given us his name, and we should use it. And so he says, and so when he says the Lord, uh, sometimes people think that that means the same thing as I am. That's uh, not necessarily the same. But, it's, but so this is the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is the Lord. But notice it's, what's important for us is not so much the vowels, is not so much the, 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 uh, the, 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 the name itself, how we pronounce it, how we say it, that we have the right to say it even but rather how he 
defines his own name. It's not simply I am who I am. It's not simply I am. It's not even the tetragrammaton. It is the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is my name. Did you get that? I am has sent me to you. In other words, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God gives his name as including part of his title, part of his identity, his identity that he gives himself, the God who can only be identified with reference to himself because of the doctrine of his aseity, because he is entirely self-contained, because he is I am who I am, because he is all of those things. He gives himself the identity of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, therefore your God. Throughout our text, he never gives his name in isolation, but always, always in reference to his people, to, those, to, to the people whom he is sending Moses to. He is saying, I am in verse 16, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In verse 18, they will listen to your voice and said, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, uh, we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He is always our God. He is always your God. See what's going on here. Understand what's going on here. God doesn't need the Israelites. He is, I am who I am. He is entirely, utterly powerful and sovereign and self-contained. He needs no one. No one at all. And yet... And yet he defines himself, I am who I am, as the God of these people. And here then you see the God of grace. Grace just means gift. It's a one-sided action on God's part. God doesn't need these people. He gets nothing out of his relationship with these people. And so his willingness to identify himself with them, indeed more, to send Moses, and as we'll see, as you see, as, as the rest of this text unfolds, as we go through the rest of chapter 3 and, and into chapter 4, to send Moses to save, to save the, the, the Israelites from their captivity, to deliver them, to redeem them. It is his choice to do so. It is entirely unilateral. That is to say, it is one-sided. It has everything to do with him, with him himself. And it struck me this morning... This is the great difference then between Christianity and, and Islam. Uh, there's, those are the differences. But this is it foundationally. This is it foundationally because, they, because Islam claims to worship the God of Abraham. That's what you hear. The politicians will always say, well, all the great world religions, we all worship the same God because none of the politicians actually you know, apparently go to church. And because... Islam affirms God's aseity, 100%. The God of Abraham, doctrine of aseity, they're on board. But do we worship the same God? Because in Islam, 
this God who is who He is does not act unilaterally with grace. People have to come to Him. He does not come to them. He is not a redeemer. People have to work their way to God. But this is a God who comes to people who do not need Him, who do not deserve Him. And so, how does God choose to demonstrate His sovereignty and power? It is specifically by redeeming His people. This is how He chooses to make Himself known. Not just by saying, I am who I am. It is the gods of the nations who would say, I am who I am. Who am I? I am who I They say, God, who are you? I am who I am. And they go, then they disappear, right? They're gone. They're transcendent. They're above. God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who is who he is, who is undefinable, who is incomprehensible, who is ultimately unknowable by creatures, not just because he is the creator, but because of actually who he is before he even chose to create. He chooses to reveal himself. He chooses to make himself known. He chooses a people and to identify himself with them. He takes them as his own name, his own identity. And he says, he says, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, this is his memorial. The Lord's memorial is the redemption of the sons of Israel. A memorial, right? That's, that's a statue, or it's a building, or it's something by which people are to be remembered. It's, uh, and I, I, I spent a big chunk of my life growing up, up outside of Washington, D.C., which is full of memorials, uh, and, and we got a chance to visit there this summer, and they put up more memorials. I was really surprised. Uh, like, weren't there enough already? Like, apparently not. We need more, and, and they're still building other ones. Uh, but we have Hamilton. There's the the soldier dude. Um, it's a memorial. Not sure to who. I, I really should figure that out. Uh, but that's, right, we're, we're memorials. We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to remember things by virtue of memorials or statues or buildings or whatnot. But the Lord's memorial, the thing by which the Lord is to be remembered, is that He is the Redeemer. That He has redeemed His people. That is how He is to be known all the nations. So what is God's name? Of course, ultimately, God's name is Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. For here we see the very character of God revealed, that He is the God who identifies with an undeserving people. Without even getting into the doctrine of sin, without even getting into uh, the, the, the idea that you have rebelled against a, a good and loving God, leaving that aside entirely, there's no reason for God to choose you. There's no reason that God needs you. There's no reason that for God to, to come to find a people. And yet this is how God has chosen to reveal Himself. This is how God has chosen to be in relationship to His creation and in particular in relationship to His people. And here, then, is the difference in the religions of Abraham between Judaism and Christianity, where in Judaism, 
they have made the name of God unknown. They've chosen not to know it, even though it was revealed to, to Moses. We don't know it. We refuse to know it. We refuse to say it or to even know how to say it anymore, even know how to say it anymore. But we know his name as a second person of the Trinity, as our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is to be known forever as the Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer, we have sung, even this morning, because that is who he is. He is, I am who I am. He is, I am. He is Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. And that is how he is to be known. That is how he is to be understood. We know God's name because he has revealed himself to us and because he has united himself to you. And so that is how the Lord chooses, this is how the Lord chooses to be known amongst the nations as your Redeemer. You are, therefore, the church of Jesus Christ is, therefore, the Lord's memorial. We don't need statues. We don't need buildings. I mean, it's nice to have buildings to worship in, but we don't need any of that because that's not what God needs. God has chosen a people by whom to be remembered. He has chosen a people whose existence is his memorial. And so he is memorialized, therefore, as his people gather together. And so as you worship him, the sovereign Lord is memorialized by his name, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sovereign Lord's memorial is your redemption. And the Lord is sovereign in your redemption. How does God choose to display his sovereignty, to make his sovereignty his authority to rule, known by the Egyptians. Because when we say God is sovereign, we ought not think for a moment that that means he is sovereign only over his people, only over the Hebrews. He is, I am who I am. He is the maker and creator of all things. Therefore, he has the authority, not just the power, but the authority to rule over all things, to rule over all nations and all peoples, to rule over all of his creations. How is he going to demonstrate his Power, how is he going to demonstrate his authority? The Lord demonstrates his authority by delivering his beloved people, as he declares in verses 16 through 22. In verses 16 and 17, he talks about the Exodus itself. We have, I'm preaching from the book of Exodus, uh, but the, and the book of Exodus covers a number of things, but the Exodus, but, but, but really the Exodus takes up like this little tiny portion of it. It's just a couple chapters where the Exodus happens because just when they, when they leave Egypt, that's it. Like when they actually cross the border, which is the Red Sea, which is kind of, kind of cool. Uh, but I don't want to ruin that. That's spoiler alert. Uh, there's, they're going to cross the Red Sea. Uh, but don't tell anybody uh, that I told you that. It, it was in the trailer. Um, that's, that's cool, but that's it. That's the Exodus when they get out of Egypt. That's the Exodus itself, and that's what he's talking about here. He's going to demonstrate his power by bringing them out of Egypt, and then ultimately by bringing them into the land of promise, into a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and here, I, just, I feel a need to say what may be obvious to everyone, but as a youngish person, I was youngish at one point, growing up in church, I always thought that in 
the land of Canaan. They were like literal rivers of milk and honey. And so I just need to clarify uh, for all of you here that that is actually metaphorical language. It's a word picture, and there were not rivers of milk and honey. I think I was probably in seminary when I found that out. Um, I honestly don't know when I finally figured that out, but like that's, that's the picture that's in my head, so, so don't picture that in your head. It just means it's a land that's rich, it has everything that you need, it has milk and honey, which is also confusing to me because I thought you had the milk and the honey together, which sounds gross, uh, but if that's you, I don't want to be judgy, but I'm just saying, okay, it's a picture, so don't get hung up on it, and if I've just wasted your time with that, I apologize, I'm just... That, that's there for, 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 for everybody who is as confused as I am, um, as I once was. So, so, but that's, but, so, but that's, that's the exodus, and that's how, the God is going to, that's how the Lord is going to demonstrate his authority. He's going to demonstrate his sovereignty by bringing them out of Egypt and into the land of promise. But notice what that involves in verse 18. It is first a call to worship. They will say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, verse 18, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. It begins, the exodus is actually beginning with worship. It is a call to worship. And so as the Lord redeems, he must be worshiped. And this is something I think that is often lost sight of when we think of the exodus, that the exodus is centered around and begins with worship because worshiping this Lord is central. We must go to him three days journey and worship him. But of course, that will not, that's not the end of the story. It's not that simple. It should be that simple. Pharaoh should realize that the Lord is sovereign over all. There is no shame, no matter how powerful a king you are in recognizing that God is more powerful than you. Uh, as a king, no matter how sovereign you may be, that God, the creator of all things, a God who is, uh, defines a seity, that he, is, that he is more sovereign than you are, that, that's not embarrassing. It should not be embarrassing, but it's not going to be good enough for Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh won't acknowledge that. And so much of the next portion of Exodus is, really needs to be understood as a war, a battle between God and Pharaoh, between the Lord, I am who I am, and, and Pharaoh himself. Another spoiler alert, the Lord wins. Uh, but he's going to, and that's the point, is he says that he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Notice what's happening. Is Pharaoh humbled and humiliated through this process? Yes. Is, is Pharaoh, does, does Pharaoh and everybody else on the entire planet understand that, that Pharaoh is nothing and the Lord is everything? Yes, but that's not the driving point. The point is, after that, he will let you go. God's purpose is not to humiliate Pharaoh. That's a side thing. It's not to defeat Pharaoh. That happens in the process, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is redeeming his people, is saving his people, is delivering his people. And with that comes, then, the plundering of Egypt, that they will not go out empty-handed, that they will not leave as a people who have been oppressed and have lost everything over the last 80 to 100 years, but as a people, then, who will take back all the wealth that was taken from them and have even more as they go out 
from Egypt and, into, and, and begin their exodus, begin their journey into the land of promise. They will have gold and jewelry and all these other things as a sign that they have been redeemed, as a token, uh, if you will, the, 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 the evidence to the world that the Lord has indeed redeemed them, that the Lord has saved them. And so the Lord's sovereignty, His authority to rule, is defined and characterized by His works of redemption, by saving His people. And that's why, again, as I mentioned earlier in the service, it is so important to remember the preface to the, to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If we don't remember that, if we don't remember that, then the Ten Commandments become works that we do. And this is why, frankly, as a tired and grumpy old preacher man, I get really irritated by Ten Commandments, uh, Ten Commandment statues or memorials that are out in public parks or wherever, because they don't have the preface to the Ten. Com- they don't have the preface. And it's not that you're not supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, whoever you are. Everybody's supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, but they're useless without the preface. Without that preface that says, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Without that preface, the Ten Commandments just say you're going to hell. That is all they say. But with the preface, there is a reminder that the God who commands you to obey has provided salvation. He has redeemed And that's why we need to understand that ultimately the Lord demonstrates His authority by delivering His beloved from death to life. I cannot underscore this. I cannot state this clearly and boldly enough. God's commandments are a letter of death. They're a condemnation. They're a reminder of who you are, that you were born under the authority and power of sin. You're born a sinner, and you were born, therefore, to die. That death has power and authority over this world and over you because of your sin, because of the Ten Commandments, because you have not kept them and you have had no interest in keeping them. But I am the Lord thy God which hath brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is the preface to the Ten Commandments because it's a reminder It's a reminder that the demonstration of God's sovereignty in the Exodus, of his authority to rule, is ultimately merely a shadow, a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of the redemption that was won by God on the cross. Because on the cross... Jesus Christ demonstrated his authority in defeating your oppressors. As we heard earlier from Romans 6, he died. He died so that death would die with him. 
so that you would be dead to sin. And dead to sin because He died in your place on the cross for your sins. He redeemed you. He saved you by your, from your sins by removing your sins from you, by removing the punishment for your sins from you, and more. He doesn't give you the plunder of Egypt, but rather in His resurrection, He gives you the promise that as you once died to sin and were risen to newness of life, you shall be raised on the last day into everlasting life. It's not the plunder of the Egyptians, but rather the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth, where death no longer exists, where instead you have glory, where these bodies, this flesh which is corrupt, this flesh which is aging and weakening, ridden by disease, condemned to fall apart from old age, that this flesh be raised up from the grave and not made whole, but rather made glorious like that of Jesus Himself when He rose from the grave. This is the newness of life which has begun. This is why we desire to live free from sin. Because that is how we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. That is why you struggle against sin now because you are dead to sin. Because sin does not have authority over you anymore. Because Jesus defeated it on the cross. It is done. Just as Pharaoh was defeated, so sin has been defeated. Just as the Israelites left Egypt, so you have left death and sin and gone out into newness of life. We are wandering. We are not there yet in the land of promise to a land which does not flow with milk and honey, but rather which has a river flowing through it, a river which comes from the throne of grace where our Lord Jesus Christ is seated, a river of life from which we shall drink eternally. This is the Lord, the Lord who is, I am who I am. The Lord who cannot be known or understood, but who has revealed Himself to us. Who has sent to you, not Moses, but rather has sent to you His Son. The Lord who has come to you Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has the authority and power to give you new life. And that means, therefore, beloved, that you are His memorial. How is He to be remembered? He is to be remembered as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of His people, the Lord and Deliverer of His church. Therefore, remember Him. You remember Him with everlasting praise. This is how the Lord has demonstrated His sovereignty how He has demonstrated His authority, how He has demonstrated and made known even His aseity. It is this. He has set you free to become His worshiping servant, to praise the name of Jesus Christ everlastingly, world without end. Amen.
Our Lord, we give you thanks for your great mercies to us in the cross of Jesus our Savior, that you whom we cannot comprehend has made yourself comprehensible, that you who cannot be known has made yourself known to us as our Lord and Savior. And so we pray that as those who have been raised from death to newness of life, that we might live for you, that we might continue to die to self and live to you, that we might in all things, but especially in our worship of you, seek to give you glory through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.